What exactly is a spin dictator? What does tyranny look like in the 21st century? Why is populism on the rise? And how do we reinvent our democracy? Sergei Guriev is the co-author of Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. Guriev is provost and a professor of economics at Sciences Po in Paris. He is a former chief economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in London and a former rector of the New Economic School in Moscow. Sergei Guriev, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much for inviting me. Your new book, co-authored with Daniel Treisman, Spin Doctors, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century, really provides a thoughtful analysis of how dictators bend the rules and manipulate information, shaping into their own self-interests, and we've seen the weakness of institutions. So now as you see the weaknesses of democracies and what they face, how dangerous is this whole propaganda and spin dictatorship, and what should we be looking out for? In this book, Spin Dictators, we indeed tell a story of the transformation of the way dictators, how non-democratic regimes work. And we argue that in recent decades, we've observed an emergence of a new model of dictatorship, which pretends to be a democratic regime. This model is actually to deceive people through propaganda, through selective censorship, through targeted but limited and hidden repression. And this is dangerous exactly because people would say this is not actually a non-democratic regime. Maybe it's an imperfect democracy. Maybe we should not worry too much about regime like this because eventually they will get back to the right track. But what we show in this book is that actually majority of non-democratic regimes today are dictatorships like this. Dictatorships which are hidden, deniable, manipulating, rather than openly repressive, using terror against their citizens. And in that sense, the main danger here is that we don't understand that these regimes are actually enemies of freedom, and we really need to understand how they work and how to stand up. Exactly, because we begin to relax when it has the surface. You even analyze the difference in the clothing where there was a military leader being presented, and you identify also Putin is on the line now since the writing of your book. But we relax, and the things that happen when we feel that we're being served by a healthy democracy is where the danger really is. That's exactly true. And uh, you mentioned the visual differences that are very clear, actually. The dictators in the 20th century would use military or paramilitary uniform, being generals who've served all their lives in the armies, or being civilians who would put on paramilitary or military uniform to project brute force and fear. Today, the situation is different. Successful dictators pretend to be Democrats, so they put on civilian suits and travel to Davos to talk to business elite. They talk to democratic counterparts to pretend that they are like them. And that's exactly the challenge, to understand that these are still non-democratic regimes. We still need to do something about them, because otherwise we see the encroachments on the democracies and we see also weakening of our democratic world. And many of us in the West and Europe, we are not living under a spin dictatorship, but we've seen alongside that a rise in never before so many populist leaders in the left and on the right. So can you just analyze that for us and help us understand what's slipping in in our respective countries? 
Yes, not every spin dictator is a populist and not every populist is a spin dictator. I would give an example of one of the pioneers of the model, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, who was not actually a populist. However, what you're talking about is indeed a slippery slope where populist leaders and democracies want to become spin dictators. And some of them succeed. If you think about Viktor Orban, he started off as a democratic leader, but eventually turned his country into a place where opposition doesn't have an equal chance to come to power. It's definitely true that media are co-opted and censored through various ways, and the opposition doesn't have equal access to media, for example, in today's Hungary. One other example would be Silvia Berlusconi. Another one would be Donald Trump, with a huge difference that these guys so far have not succeeded. Berlusconi is deceased, but Trump will very much try to come back. And basically, these leaders, like Viktor Orban, want to build a spin dictatorship, want to gain power and stay in power using propaganda and manipulation of information, using misleading information, using false information. And so far, American and Italian institutions have stood up to those challenges. But who knows what happens next? And tell us a little bit about your own personal encounters with spin dictators. Yes, as we mentioned in this book, we've studied Russia for a long time. And myself, I actually lived in Russia, where I ran a university, New Economic School. And as an economist, as a public intellectual, I was engaged in interactions with the government, including with Vladimir Putin. And there, of course, the situation was that Russia was already a non-democratic country, meaning that it was a country where Elections were not free and fair, and partial censorship was already in place. Yet, in those years, we could actually express ourselves openly, not on national TV, but at least in newspapers and on radio. And that eventually brought me into trouble with Vladimir Putin, who at some point suggested that I talk too much and I should not be in the same country. He has never expressed that clearly to me. He passed this message through various common friends. I was also interrogated. My office was searched. And at some point, high-ranking common friends told me, look, you shouldn't be here. And I bought a one-way ticket for the next day and just left Russia. And today we're in Sciences Po and you're a provost and a published academic. I'm so glad that you can have your ideas in free, open society. And on that parallel line, the populist leaders may aspire to spin dictatorships, but they have to do what fits best with their country. Could you discuss what are the drivers for those movements? You know, what puts our societies at risk to falling under the influence of a dangerous populist leader? Right. In addition to working on non-democratic regimes, I've also worked on populism. And we've recently written a survey of literature together with my co-author, Yes Papayano. We've written a paper called Political Economy of Populism, published in Journal of Economic Literature where we discussed hundreds of papers that tried to answer your question, especially regarding the recent rise of populism. And basically, we live in the times when whatever measure you use, populism is at an unprecedentedly high level. And also, if you look at the Western countries, because in the second half of the 20th century, people thought populism is something for Latin America. Now, today we have a lot of populism which is very different, which is entrenched in Western European countries, and more of the rise of populism in the last 10 and 20 years 
appears was on the right rather than on the left. Now, why has that happened? There are several reasons, and uh, some of them are economic. Long-term trends of globalization, leaving workers behind in developed countries where the governments open up to imports from destinations with cheaper labor, do not do enough to support and retrain workers who lose their jobs. Similar trend, automation of jobs where robots leave people without jobs. Today, we talk about artificial intelligence, which actually threatens jobs of higher skilled people. But before that, when we talked about industrial robots or software robots, that was more about middle class losing their jobs, lower middle class, blue collar workers losing their jobs to automation. And again, if you don't do enough to protect these people, to retrain these people, to give their kids a chance to gain a new occupation, you create a feeling that the elites don't care about the rest. And that's exactly the populist narrative. Populists say, look, you look at the urban cosmopolitan elites, well-trained, who benefit from globalization, who benefit from technological progress, and we are left behind. And populists say, come with me, I will protect you. Elites are corrupt, they don't care about you. We, a populist politicians, can take care of you. And then you can add up other reasons. You can think about the global financial crisis 2008, which also was a crisis which hit middle classes more than the elites, and especially in Europe, where some countries actually introduced austerity rather than supported those who were left behind. You can also think about refugee crisis of 2015-16, which was not well managed at all. You can think about general rise of immigration, where actually more and more people from developing countries try to come to developed countries, which is completely natural. But again, that occasionally displaces workers in lower income occupations in the developed countries. And again, if you don't offer these people a way forward, protection, training, you also create anti-elite sentiment. And finally, I would also mention the media technology. We live in the era of very interesting development. This is actually very recent. It's about 15 years ago. We still didn't have 3G, 4G, 5G internet. That only started about 15 years ago. And then only 10 years ago, we saw the real rise of social media with Facebook giving you a like button and becoming the dominant uh, means of telecommunications. And we show in our work that the spread of 3G, 4G, mobile broadband, internet, and social media have also contributed to the rise of populism. Why? Because populist message travels faster and more broadly and more convincingly on social media, simply because of the model of social media where the idea of creating the social media space is to make sure that your attention is kept. And of course, attention is more likely to be attracted by critical, negative, and outrageous messages. These are anti-elite messages. These are actually quite often also false messages, but they travel faster on social media. And so social media has also contributed to the rise of populism. Indeed, those kind of false or simple messages that arouse hate, it's all fuel for that. And at the same time, with the rise of social media, we've seen the decline of journalism in the fourth estate. And so how can we help maintain a vigorous fourth estate, which could help promote a thriving democracy? So this is a question which will probably take us a few hours. This is a very hard question because the challenges to business model of mainstream media have started even before the arrival of social media. And there, I think, it's not going to be a situation where I can give you a short answer. But this is where we do need mainstream media to be supported through maybe government funding, like it's done in several European countries, through crowdfunding, and of course, the most important thing that we need to make sure that happens is 
to mobilize international fact-checking NGOs and media who can stand up for dissemination of false news on social media. I'm also doing research on this, on fact-checking, on sharing of false and true media online. And I can tell you that we now have a lot more knowledge how to involve journalists and fact-checkers to slow down dissemination of false media online. And this is where I think we will move forward quite a bit, especially in Europe, where it is easier to regulate big platforms. Because I'm not going to say that big platforms are enemies of the humankind. This is not true. Social media also are a headache for dictators. They're also creating capabilities for anti-dictatorial activists to connect to each other and to disseminate information. But in developed countries, social media indeed may be a platform for dissemination of false information. And there we need to involve the media as well and regulators and journalists to fight those phenomena because they are actually threatening our democracy. In Europe, regulators have done quite a lot of progress. And in particular, we are now talking about implementation of what's called Digital Services Act, where researchers will have access to algorithms of platforms and see whether we can adjust algorithm that would slow down dissemination of false media. We already have platforms using fact checkers to slow down dissemination of false posts. And even Facebook is involved in this work and that's great. But indeed, these are challenging, challenging questions. And with all the benefits of social media, they also create negative spillovers. Indeed, we've never had so much access to information and yet it's never been so easy to manipulate large groups of people. That's correct. What is true though is that today Facebook is, is an important tool for informing people about politics. And those people would otherwise not watch political news, they would otherwise not read the newspapers and politics. But because everybody's on social media and political news travels on social media, people are better informed. And the question is whether we can make sure that this information is not polarizing and is not false. And that, I think, is doable eventually with the involvement of mainstream journalists and fact checkers. Yes, and it's a little bit utopian, but we'll be talking with Audrey Tang from Taiwan mm -hmm. about yeah. the idea of a truly transformative democracy where you're not just voting every once in a while according to a cycle, but fully engaged. So what kind of possibilities do you see in terms of that digital engagement of a truly engaged populace? So I think it's a big, big question. How do we reinvent our democracy? And indeed, the model where you have representative democracy, then once in four years you vote and delegate, this is a model which is much better than dictator. People criticize uh, Western democracies, but as somebody who lived in a non-democratic country, I would tell you that I'm not surprised that people don't move from US to Russia, right? I'm not surprised that people don't move from Europe to China. It is better. Life is better in democracy, even if you have criticism. But there is a major problem here, which is when you vote, do you actually invest in thinking about who do you vote for? And the answer for that is most people remain ignorant about the, the programs of candidates, about the problems of the society. And so we need to engage people more in in deliberation over problems like this. And indeed, whether digitally or offline, there are now many more experiments and many more ideas on how we can complement representative democracy. Some people even say replace representative democracy. But complement, for me, it's more complement the representative democracy with deliberative democracy. Where we take, for example, a, what's called mini public, take maybe 150 people, 
randomly picked. So these are not elites. These are normal people who are randomly picked who are asked to think about a specific issue and talk to each other, talk to experts, talk to politicians during several months and propose a solution. And this is something that has been used a lot now in Western countries. In Ireland, there was an issue, for example, of abortion and gay marriage, which was discussed like this. In France, after Yellow West movements, President Macron first launched a great debate at the national level and then created an ecological, social and economic convention to think what we can do on climate change in a just way because one of the things which we faced during the Yellow West movement was Macron's promise to impose fossil fuel tax, which would be good for fighting climate change, was done in a technocratic way without thinking about people who are left behind, without thinking about distributional consequences. And this is again something which populists would pick up, pointing how elites are disconnected from the public. And so we need to involve everybody in this discussion. And I would say that luckily we've now seen that mechanisms, experiments like this can work. And of course, digital technology can do even more for this because it's cheaper to launch deliberations online and you can involve more people. Indeed, and many cities in Europe are leading the way with opportunities to vote on budgets and propose yeah. things. The challenge with that is then when you increase the bandwidth to include more voices, is how do you identify the good ideas so it's not just a cacophony? Yes, so we need deliberation for this, we need the public square for this, we need debate. And this is exactly the challenge you mentioned, the problems of mainstream media. Mainstream media are the spaces where we are supposed to debate things. And indeed, if you just put an issue to a vote and you don't discuss this issue before, that creates a vote which is reasonably random. And so this is why we need media and this is why we need deliberation. And just to speak a little bit about the programs at Sciences Po and how do you form the citizens, the leaders of tomorrow, the next generation? That's exactly right. And we feel a great responsibility that we train the citizens for the future and train the leaders for the future. And Sciences Po is a unique institution in many ways. And one of those is it plays a disproportionately important role in training the social, political, business elites in France. In no other country, you have just one single institution, which is so important for training, for training the political elite. And that's why we feel a great responsibility. That's why we always ask ourselves, what else? we can do to make sure that people who will run this country 20 years later actually know what they are supposed to do. And so we talk about the issues we just mentioned. We talk about the issues of social justice. We make sure that our student body is diverse. This is something that has started before the current generation of science for leadership. Two university presidents before Richard de Quine, a visionary leader, created a special way of recruiting students from disadvantaged school districts. And we are increasing the and actually this year we're increasing the number of students like this by 50%. Basically the idea is to create a really diverse student body so we don't have this disconnect between elites and the other people. But we also think about the subjects, the challenges of our times. We teach more and more on environmental transformation, on digital transformation. We have special research programs on discrimination and inequalities, and we teach courses on this as well. And of course, we also involve highly international faculty and student body. This is again something that is a part of my strategy as a provost, we need to recruit more international faculty because we already have internationalized our student body. We have about half of Sciences Po students who are either 
international or by nation. So this is also an important part of our strategy to become not just an institution in France, but also an institution for the whole world. Because all these issues, climate change, digital transformation, inequalities, geopolitics and crisis, these are all global issues which have to be addressed not by one country, but by the international community. Yes, and just going back to that issue of populism, because some of those issues like a mistrust of elites or a mismanagement of, say, resources that are not reaching every sector of society, I mean, some of those are really important questions. However, they're slogans, but they don't stand up to fulfilling the promise that they make when they are elected. There is research which shows exactly what you've said. Populists do not deliver on their promises and then tries to undermine checks and balances, tilt the playing ground fail in their favor so they can hang on to the office and not step down when they're voted out. And so this is actually the rule rather than exception. We talked about Viktor Orban, you can also think about not just Putin, but also Erdogan. All these leaders who managed to do that, most of them become spin dictators, but all of them try to keep the power in a non-democratic way. Why? Because they cannot deliver. Why can't they deliver? Because they hate the elites, they hate the competent advisors. And they also undermine checks and balances. And for economic growth, checks and balances are important. You do need independent regulators. You do need independent central bank. You do need independent courts and you do need separation of powers. This is what populists don't like. They say separation of powers, unelected regulator. These are the technocratic elites who don't care about you. Once you undermine those institutions, you undermine those checks and balances, you also, in fact, undermine economic growth and therefore your ability to deliver on your promise. And I liked the international perspective, of course, of Sciences Po, which maybe is open to a multipolar world. We have to reckon with the fact that if you just think from an American perspective, it's just 4.1% of the world population, whereas the BRICS country is, I think, at 41.5%. So the question of America, is it really in a position to continue to impose a world order? I think the problem of unipolar versus multipolar order is that it's not that America is now less important in terms of share of global GDP. It's also that America has lost quite a bit of a soft power after the global financial crisis, after the war in Iraq, which divided America as well, and after election of Donald Trump. So all these challenges that we were talking about also undermine America's moral authority in the world. Yet, and we talk about this in this book, Spin Dictators, we talk about the fact that spin dictators cannot offer you an alternative model. They say we are also Democrats. And this is a huge difference with the dictators of 20th century. Stalin would say, I have an ideology which is different from yours, and it's a greater good for everybody, and you need to tighten your belts. Hitler would say the same, a very different future, but also he would say, I have something which is bigger than any individual German. And this is not the case today. Spin dictators say we are Democrats. We are like America's imperfect, we are also imperfect. And this is where I think we should remain optimistic because people around the world want to live in democracy. Nobody wants to move to North Korea because there is absolute order. No, people still prefer to live in free societies. And when you look at polls around the world in democratic or non-democratic countries, democracy is always supported by more people than strong leader or dictator. And in that sense, we should remain optimistic. Yet, I think it's super important to fix our democracies. We talked about populism. There are solutions to the problems of people 
being left behind. I'll just give you an example. I mentioned that uh, populism was in particular, the recent rise of populism was in particular supported by the failures of governments during the global financial crisis in 2008-9 and the subsequent austerity. We've learned from those mistakes and during COVID crisis, government said we will spend as much as possible, but we will not leave people behind. And that really helped. We've not seen the rise of populism during COVID or right after COVID. With all the problems of COVID, this lesson, at least this lesson of not leaving people behind during the crisis, this lesson we have learned. And this is good. And I'm really proud that I'm part of this profession that studied this issue and suggested that this should not be repeated. And I think policymakers have seen that, learned this lesson. And that also creates optimism that we will be able to fix our democracies in the future if we understand what the problem is. Exactly, that ability to be reflective and to make necessary changes. You mentioned soft power, which is, of course, always preferable. And we see this the war in Ukraine and the sanctions, which would offer a certain amount of punishment that would make it the war end sooner. But in some ways, those sanctions have not gone as envisaged. Countries may be, oh, let's not keep our money in the reserve currency of the U.S. dollar. So it might be even hastening the decline of the U.S. as the dominant currency. That's correct. And the West has discovered in 2022, with a surprise, that there are many third countries who say it's not our war. Yes, aggression is unjust and brutal, but it's your European-American war. You do what you want, we will not join the sanctions. And that is, in a sense, again, the implication of losing the moral ground and soft power in the previous years. One of those examples you can think of is indeed the climate fund of $100 billion per year, which was promised but not delivered on. You, you may think about the story of vaccination during COVID when Western countries have not supplies enough vaccines to developing countries. You can also think about the issue of non-Western wars, which are more or less neglected the Western media and society. If you think about civil war in Ethiopia, it was probably even more brutal than the war in Ukraine. Yet, as the war in Ukraine is closer to home, Europeans are more likely to notice it and to react to this, which is insulting to other countries. You also see a very welcoming treatment of Ukrainian refugees in Europe, and this is great, and this is how it should be. But other refugees, including Syrian refugees in 2015, including Afghan refugees in 2021, complain. And all these divides remind the West that you always need to stick to your values. If you have double standards, you will pay for that later. And this is the moment, unfortunately, when the mistakes we've made in the past are coming back at us. And we should learn from those mistakes. And in the future, do not repeat those mistakes. Try. When we say that we want to fight climate change globally, we deliver on our commitments. When we say that we support peace around the world, we should treat every war as unacceptable. And so this is something that is very hard to do. But I think this is a year when we learn from the mistake. Concerning the war, I think that we all want to vie for peace and that look at the situation with some complexity. I mentioned to you earlier that I had just interviewed Jeffrey Sachs and he went through this history of the conflict. It wasn't just, you know, an overnight invasion. So how do you take in the complexity of the situation of at some point Putin and Russia does not want further expansion of NATO and yet we don't like the way he is conducting the war. I have not listened to this particular podcast with Jeffrey Sachs, but I've read what he's written and I've read also what other 
scholars have written regarding expansion of NATO has never been mentioned in 1990s. Moreover, Gorbachev was never promised in writing that NATO would not expand. And most important, expansion of NATO is not because U.S wants to expand NATO, but because countries like Poland, or for that matter Hungary, or for that matter Baltic countries, want to become protected from Russian invasion. And they have a reason. In 2022, as well as in 2014, we've seen that they have a reason. So if Lithuania were not a NATO member today, Lithuania would have a similar situation to Ukraine or Moldova, which don't have their territorial sovereignty protected. And that's exactly the difference. Now, did Ukraine plan to join NATO before 2014? No. That was very clear that Ukraine wanted to have a DCFTA, Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Association, with uh, Europe, which is again a normal desire and it's an economic issue. But NATO was not popular in Ukraine at that point at all. And so every invasion creates the incentive to join the defense bloc. This is how it works. I do believe it's natural for countries to want to uh, join NATO. And uh, we had discussed different things and he mentioned different parties within the U.S. behind the scenes, Victoria Newland and others, wanting certain countries that have now become part of NATO. So mm. it is complex, and I know that we have to make these moral decisions. And what do you think about the Wagner mercenary group, and does this show the declining power of Putin? I think the recent events, which we still don't fully understand, are showing that indeed Putin is not as strong as he used to be. And basically what we understand has happened was that Wagner Group was growing too independent and too critical regarding the Ministry of Defense. And at some point, Ministry of Defense convinced Vladimir Putin that it has to stop. So about a week before the rebellion, Russian government announced that all private military companies have to sign up with Ministry of Defense. So Wagner soldiers have to sign contracts with Ministry of Defense. Prigozhin responded to that publicly that he's not going to do it. He didn't know what to do. And so his response to that was he probably counted on his friends and allies in Moscow, in KGB, in Ministry of Defense. He has friends who are deputy ministers or generals and so on. And yet after his one-day march on Moscow, he saw that they don't resist him, but they also don't join him. That would be a completely different game. And then in getting closer to Moscow, he saw that Moscow still has many more soldiers than Prigozhin, and it will not be easy. And so he negotiated some way. We don't understand what is part of this negotiation, whether Prigozhin will be able to escape. If I were him, I would really worry for my life, because people who betray Putin have become immediate targets. I'm sure Prigozhin understands that, and he'll probably try to disappear. Hi, I'm Anna Seewald. I study history and Russian at Brandeis University. This has been a fascinating conversation to listen to. Professor Guriev is obviously a very talented economist, and it's been a privilege to listen to his thoughts on one of the very high-stakes political situations going on in the world right now. One idea that I thought was really unexpected through line was the idea of how important aesthetics are in the understanding most people have of the political landscape. Dictators and spin dictators today don't look like they did in the 20th century both in terms of political self-identification and material presentation. In saying they value democracy and avoiding imagery associated with infamous 20th century leaders like military regalia, they're often able to avoid those connotations as well, even though threats to democracy now are just as dangerous. These threats also carry over to nations traditionally recognized as democracies, including the US, where fascist ideology has been spreading, often fairly unchecked by media, and governmental and social institutions, resulting in policies limiting protections from organized groups of people, 
voting rights, environmental justice, and anti-corruption legislation. As of my recording this, affirmative action was just overturned while legacy admissions remained protected, demonstrating the very material consequences of the efforts of those in power to keep our institutions overwhelmingly white, wealthy, and certainly not democratic in a way that accurately reflects the people of this country. Just like in the spin dictatorships Professor Guriev has been talking about, cloaking these ideas behind the aesthetics of freedom, patriotism, and small government can be really quite effective ways to hide what are fundamentally anti-democratic ideals. Now, back to the episode. What surprised you or gave you most cause for concern in the research for spin doctors? So when we look at non-democratic regimes in the world, what is surprising is how much these people actually solicit advice from each other. And so we don't have a dictators international, we don't trade union of dictators, but it's almost like this. And the problem is that they also penetrate our own institutions. In the book, we talk a lot how we need to protect the institutions of international liberal order. So we have Hungary, which is a member of European Union, which slowed down introduction of sanctions in 2022 against Russia. We have Erdogan, who is a member of NATO, which slowed down accession to NATO of Sweden and Finland, which would, in 2022, Finland eventually joined. At the moment of our conversation, Sweden is stuck. So this is a typical problem we have with the fact that NATO, which was supposed to protect democratic countries, also has a member which stands against failures of democracy and freedom. Only in the spring 2023, Russia chaired meetings of Security Council. When you think about those issues, it is completely bizarre, but this is what surprises you when you see how much our institutions are penetrated by those non-democratic regimes. Yes, I wouldn't say that you have created a handbook. You allow us citizens to identify those traits and to be aware. So you also provide a lot of solutions. Mm-hmm. That's correct. We talk about solutions. The one other thing which surprised us was how effective the spin dictators are in recruiting enablers in Western capitals. And so one of the solutions is to clean up this situation. There are so many people who work for spin dictators in Washington, London, Paris, Brussels, and uh, these people do their bidding, usually for money, and uh, sometimes just out of their own strange convictions. But basically that helps spin dictators penetrate and undermine our own democratic institutions. And that's great for them, because if they have agents of influence in our capitals, it's harder for us to sanction the dictators. But if the links between enablers and dictators come up, dictators go back home and say, see, they have corrupt politicians, they have corrupt bankers, they have corrupt journalists, they have corrupt lawyers. So they're not better than us. We are corrupt, but they're also corrupt. And in that sense, this export of corruption is a phenomenal tool that protects spin dictators and helps them advance in their interests. And this is, again, a solution. We know this now, and now we need to act to stop this penetration of corrupt money from dictatorship into democracy. And it breaks my heart to see all of this energy and this struggle for power and these unnecessary wars, you know, that we could solve with diplomacy. So what are your reflections on the environment and how we could advance? So this is not a subject of my research, but indeed it breaks my heart to see that this is an existential issue for our civilization. And instead of focusing on environmental transformation, on sustainability, we have to deal with this unnecessary costly wars, which destroy a lot of resources. And this is what is very, very painful. As an economist, I would just give you a number. If you compare the 
forecast made for GDP, global GDP in 2022, made before the beginning of the war and right after the beginning of the war, the difference would be $1 trillion. And this is exactly the problem with what we're facing today. We need to focus on green transition. And instead, we focus on how to stop Putin from killing people. And that's, of course, as you rightly said, is heartbreak. Yeah, we keep on getting set back. I hope we meet our targets, or at least somewhat. So as you think about, actually, I have a question about teachers that were important for you. Who are important in your formation, teachers and collaborators? So I've been fortunate to learn from many people in my life. Some of them already passed away. And these were professors in Russia, where I went to Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. This were Alexander Petrov and Igor Paspelov. I've also uh, been fortunate to meet a lot of people during my transformation from a mathematician into an economist. And these were mostly people in Western universities, or many. And I would just not give their names because they subsequently became Nobel Prize winners. And I don't want to, to just throw off important names, but I've been fortunate to work with very smart and very generous academics who taught me who I should become, how I should work, which research questions I should raise. But I would say that probably most, the most from my life was also an economist and co-author, Ekaterina Zhuravskaya, who also taught me how to do research well and how to work on research questions that matter for the whole world. And so as you think about the future and the economics of transformation, the importance of an open society and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think young people should not panic. I think we are in a very difficult situation, but we do have amazing technology. We do have the way to invent more technology. And as an economist, I believe that we should remain optimistic. I think there are many things we can do, both in terms of taxing dirty production, but also subsidizing clean production and investing in infrastructure that itself can create incentives for the green transition. And in that sense, I think we should work more. We should work together. We should learn more. In order not to panic, we should also understand the exact challenges, the numbers, the science, listen to the experts. But indeed, we should focus and work together. Because indeed, what I can say as a political economist, of course, the political system is stuck in status quo. And in order to refocus the priorities of current political class, you yourself need to become politician. You yourself need to participate in politics. You yourself need to talk to experts and try to come up with solutions, constructive solutions. I'm pretty sure it's possible. And what I like about the young people, they're very, very much aware of those issues very mobilized, especially regarding the issue of environmental transformation. That, I think, is what creates hope. Well, thank you, Sergei Goyev, for helping us understand spring dictatorships and this new 21st century form of autocracy, the situations under which populists come to power, and solutions to help ensure a promotion of healthy democracies. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Anna Seewald. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez.
We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.